Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 75. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And during the previous episode, we talked about perioperative management of anticoagulants and antiplatelet. That was number 74. We're continuing the same talk in this episode as well. So I think we ended somewhere in talking about what to do with specific anticoagulants. Let's move to what to do in regards to antiplatelets because these also require some holding around the procedure time because of increased risk of bleeding. And you know, the most common antiplatelet that should come to everyone's mind is aspirin. What's unique about aspirin is even at doses as low as something like 50 milligrams a day, you can get a good amount of antiplatelet effect. And really, it's that's where the ceiling effect is. So giving 325 or even 650 of aspirin gives you no more antiplatelet effect. So even that baby aspirin, which is probably a misnomer because we don't use it in babies, even that baby aspirin dose gives you profound antiplatelet effect. Yeah, so the recommendation about aspirin around the procedure is going to be irrelevant of the doses of the aspirin itself. We do know that there is longer inhibition of platelets with aspirin. So the recommendations are really divided based on what's the patient cardiovascular risk. Because as you said, Dr. Kane, most of these patients are taking it either small dose or higher dose based on some cardiovascular indications. So if they have low to no cardiovascular risk and the procedure is low risk, um, things like minor dental, dermatology, or ophthalmology procedures, the recommendation usually is to not hold. But if the procedure risk is moderate to high and the patient's cardiovascular risk is low or none, then in that case, we go ahead and hold it for seven days before the procedure. And a great example of this would be someone who's just taking aspirin because they think it's heart healthy, but has never had an ASCVD event. And if you calculated an ASCVD score in them, it's not very high. So this would be the person who decided to take aspirin because they felt like it was a good idea versus that higher risk cardiovascular patient who is taking aspirin because they had a recent MI, they've had stents recently, they had a history of cabbage. Anyone who has basically ASCVD, that would be a high-risk patient that you would actually not stop the aspirin in that patient regardless of the bleeding risk of the procedure with maybe some caveats for something like neurosurgical elective procedures, but for the most part, you're not going to be holding this. Moving on to the next class of medications are P2Y12 inhibitors. Uh, low-risk procedures, uh, so main thing we look at is comparing um, first uh, monotherapy versus a combined or dual antiplatelet therapy. So for low-risk procedure monotherapy with whether that's clopidogrel, ticagrel, or prazogrel, these medications, there's really no need to hold those as long, again, as long as it's a low-risk procedure. So we're thinking of things like cataract surgeries and, again, certain types of, um, for example, colonoscopies without uh, biopsy, for example. Those are going to be some of the more common ones. Probably not worth holding the medication at that point. However, if it is a moderate to high-risk procedure, again, so if we're talking in an area with a lot of a blood flow or areas, again, we think of the brain, where the risk of hemorrhage or clot is very severe or the consequences are bad, you really, with clopidogrel or ticagrel, are holding five days prior to the procedure. And then with prazogrel, owing to a little bit of change in um, kinetics, uh, holding for seven days prior. 
in a lot of these durations, and these are actually similar durations for if you were to hold aspirin as well, it's not actually so much the drug half-life per se. A lot of times it's just irreversible platelet inhibition where the body has to make new platelets for your platelet function to return. So it's one of those examples of a pharmacokinetic half-life versus a pharmacodynamic effect. Those are different concepts here. Yep, and as we know from going back to knowing platelets, is that it takes them about seven days. That's like usually the lifespan of the platelets. So body needs to generate new platelets. Dr. Schumann, you mentioned something about whether patients are on dual antiplatelet therapy. So these are patients who have received a scent and they're within that one-year duration. We most likely have these patients on something called double or dual antiplatelet therapy, and that is one of the agents is aspirin, the other agent is one of these P2Y12 inhibitors. And so in that case, what we do, because these patients are high cardiovascular risk patients, we continue aspirin, as we discussed earlier, in most low to moderate risk procedure, but we consider holding the P2Y12 inhibitors. Uh, in cases of the high-risk elective procedures, what the usual recommendation, again, this is also coming from the AHACC, is that if possible, the elective procedures should be delayed. Again, the delay recommendations are based on what type of stent did the patient get, right? The risk of clotting is different based on the type of stent patient receives. So the AHACC says that if it's a bare metal stent, you should delay the procedure by about six weeks. And if it's the drug-eluting stent, then the procedure should ideally be delayed for about six months. And again, the one caveat, though, if it cannot be delayed, if you say, you know, this procedure, elective but not really, we need to do it, aspirin should be continued for the drug-eluting stents, and the P2Y12 inhibitor should be restarted as soon after the procedure as possible. And I think it's just worth noting that for these really high-risk people, um, where they're on dual antiplatelet therapy after a very recent stent, where our main concern is actually stent thrombosis. So we have this like foreign object in a coronary blood vessel, and that foreign object has no problem clotting off. And if it does clot off, it can be a pretty profound MI for the patient. So really, it's not just people with cardiovascular disease, it's this really specific patient group because of this foreign body that they've had inserted in their coronary vessel, we're extremely worried about them and that's why we may be deferring or delaying a potential intervention that isn't necessary right now for those patients. Absolutely. And then so segueing from what to do with different antiplatelets, let's talk about in almost general situations, when do we resume either the anticoagulants that we discussed in previous episode or the antiplatelets that we just discussed now? So the recommendation generally for warfarin is 12 to 24 hours post-procedure restarting the medication, the warfarin. AHA and American College of Cardiology recommends restarting 24 hours post-procedure. And I know, just thinking back to a patient I was talking to last week, in our general practice, that's what we do. If we have, you know, let's say you take the medication in the morning, you know, we have a, a 10 a.m. To, to noon, or, you know, let's say it's a shorter procedure, go ahead and start it the, ne- the next day. And so essentially giving that 24-hour post-procedure procedure. And the one caveat we have in our clinic, again, is obviously as you're looking for signs or symptoms of bleed. So I talk, you know, unless that's, you know, unless you get further inclination from the hemo, you know, cardiologist or from the urologist based upon, you know, how the procedure went, what are some other patient-specific factors? And so I think that seems to be a kind of a little bit of a nuance that allow the patient that we can encourage that communication piece. And if you really think about it, if we 
had to hold warfarin. Uh, we were holding it for five days. So by the time the procedure day comes, the INR level is usually one. And knowing the pharmacokinetic and dynamic of warfarin, even if they start that very evening, so it's within that 12-hour window, that dose is not going to start being effective. So it's okay in certain cases, like colonoscopy was at 8 in the morning, they can totally take their dose at night, that night itself. And then transitioning to the antiplatelet agents like aspirin and our P2Y12 inhibitors like clopidogrel or Plavix, you know, those typically can start the day after the procedure. These do have an onset essentially as soon as you take them within an hour or so. So you will start having that antiplatelet effect fairly quickly. Just to give kind of a, a typical clinical scenario would be someone who had open heart surgery. You know, these kinds of patients will have chest tubes to help with preventing a pneumothorax. They've got their chest was just opened up. We'll actually give them aspirin the very next day, potentially you know up to 12 to 24 hours after their surgery, after this fairly high bleeding risk procedure, because again, the, it's a risk and benefit thing of, wow, they, they have pretty severe coronary artery disease, which is why they had the procedure in the first place. So if you can do that in someone who had a cabbage, you can probably do that for someone who had a dental extraction, for example. Yeah, and in a lot of the situations, clinical judgment is going to play a big role, uh, risk versus benefit. Uh, of thrombosis and bleeding is going to play a role as well. Yeah, I think that applies again to our next situation where we talk about the DOACs. Again, the, the big piece with this is we have some, some nuance. So assessing the hemostasis and the renal function of the individual, letting that know, again, how soon, you know, because these drugs, again, we don't have that, that delay in effect quite with warfarin, so we have to factor that in. If, an, if initial uh, or immediate hemostasis is achieved, at that point, can receive, uh, resume the medication within six to eight hours. But other moderate to high-risk procedures. Again, so if we're talking as Dr. Kennedy, somebody who has had you know fairly complex, we still got tubes in place, or the individual is still healing, and there's some concern about some internal bleed resulting from the procedure. Probably better to wait and resume 24 to 48 hours later. And again, that's very nuanced, and it's going to be a lot of a clinical judgment and based upon the assessment, not just the pharmacist who makes that initial recommendation, but also based upon the the surgeons and the consultants, everyone else who's participating in that patient's care. The unfractionated heparins we covered during last episode, we talked about how they're kind of like an on and off switch used mostly in the hospitalized patients. So again, the evaluation will be obviously based on the procedures and patient's bleeding risk. For low risk of bleeding, you can resume the, uh, the heparin within six to eight hours. For those with moderate to high risk, we can resume it within eight to 12 hours post-procedure. Mind you, these patients are going to be under close supervision, and so really it's going to be dependent on the patient's bleeding risk. And then finally, for our low molecular weight heparins, Fondaparinax, Argatraban, Bivalarudin, you know, most of these patients will be on the inpatient side. Subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin and Fondaparinax potentially could be on the outpatient side. But for these guys, you know, if, if it's a low risk procedure, we can start at six to eight hours after the procedure. And if it's a moderate to high-risk procedure in terms of bleeding, you could wait up to one to two days after the procedure itself. Yeah, so a good example of use of Lovenox on the outpatient side is usually doing colonoscopy-type bridging. And so I usually have patients start their Lovenox dose like the next day after the colonoscopy is over. The recommendation we mentioned earlier are more for your elective procedure. So you have time to decide, you know, when you want to stop the medication, when you want to resume the medication. But there are situations like urgent procedures. So what do we do? We're not going to go in detail and talk about these agents, but it's worth a mention that we do have some reversal agents available that the clinical team may be utilizing in order to reverse the anticoagulation. 
So with Warfarin, we're gonna give either fresh frozen plasma, FFP, or we're gonna give a product called K-Centra, which is a, a PCC, a four-factor PCC, prothrombin complex concentrate. This basically gives the patient back a bunch of cladding factors that they're deficient in because of their warfarin immediately. In addition to that, if we want their INR to stay low after that is given, we'll give them either an IV or an oral dose of vitamin K depending on if they're actively bleeding or not and kind of the clinical scenario. So basically we give them a short-term fix for their INR and then a longer-term fix for their INR. And then with uh, dibigatran or perdaxa, we have a unique opportunity because the one of the, the NOACs or the DOACs or the, the newer agents that does have that, essentially that one-to-one reversal agent, we have idorosizumab or praxbind, which again can be given to that to fully reverse that agent, which, which does separate it out from our other DOACs. The other DOACs, we don't have a reversal agent approved yet. It's being investigated, but currently we're using the four-factor PCC K-Centra, as Dr. Kane mentioned earlier, to manage the uh, reversal of anticoagulation. So, you know, we've gone through a lot of material. I think uh, it would be a great idea to go back to the original patient case from episode 74. So this was a 55-year-old African-American female who was on warfarin for recurrent VTE, and she's currently got an INR goal between two and three. Uh, she's been fairly stable, and, and she's currently being evaluated for a knee replacement surgery. It's going to be in two weeks, and basically we were tasked with coming up with a plan for this patient in preparation for her procedure in two weeks for her knee replacement surgery. So if you kind of take that more of a process-like structure, the first thing to do or step one is to assess the patient's risk of thrombosis and the risk of bleeding. And mind you, we have to consider the risk of procedure-related bleeding as well as patient factor uh, for bleeding as well. So here, looking at why patients taking the warfarin to begin with, it's a recurrent VTE. The last DVT she had was about seven years ago. So that wasn't like in the last three months or even last six months. So considering that her risk of thrombosis can be somewhere between low to moderate, then, of course, we have to think about the bleeding risk for the procedure. So it turns out, and I'm not a surgeon, but I've heard that a total knee replacement can have a fairly high risk of bleeding associated with it because of the amount of manipulation that they're doing. The actual procedure itself is just at a high risk for bleeding. Again, anytime you're hacking into a limb, it does, it does seem you're going to be getting some blood flow that may be triggered there. So, yeah, so what we know about that is warfarin plus a high-risk procedure seems fairly said would require a five-day hold of the warfarin. So the question then I think becomes, what do we do then in the meantime? Do we just stop the warfarin, go kind of five days without anything, hope for the best? Do we put something else in there? So Dr. Patel, what are we thinking? Well, given kind of low to moderate risk of clotting, we can consider bridging with the low molecular weight heparin. And depending on, you know, whether you want to be aggressive and do therapeutic low molecular weight heparin or you want to do more like a prophylactic dose, it really depends on the clinician. In this patient, I think we can go either way knowing that the risk is low to moderate. But definitely we'll have to do the bridging before and after the procedure. And then usually we stop the warfarin and then when the INR falls subtherapeutic, which is in one to two days, is when we introduce the low molecular weight heparin, and then patient will go through the low molecular weight heparin regimen, do the procedure, and then we're going to resume both the warfarin and low molecular weight heparin 24 to 12 hours after the procedure. And again, thinking about this particular patient, uh, someone who may be immobile for a prolonged period of time, her clotting risk is going to be higher 
terms of a DVT than someone who's never had a DVT in the past. So in terms of risk assessment for her post-knee uh, replacement, I probably would argue more on the aggressive side because of her past medical history of having a DVT. Mm-hmm. It turns out actually a lot of DVTs, you never recanalize the, the vein itself. So many patients will basically have a chronic clot in there that never goes away depending on where the clot is and how large it was. And of course, that's excellent substrate for a new clot to form off of. So again, she's at definitely a high risk. Right. So the next thing to do is look at what to do with her aspirin. And so again, here we're talking about primary prevention. And so because of that, again, we now looking at secondary history, we don't have quite that history of MI. So because of that, we can go ahead and stop the aspirin seven days prior to the procedure. And then with any kind of bridging or gap in therapy, uh, we'll have to do a very thorough patient education, provide a comprehensive plan. What I do in my clinic in general is put down the days, the dates, the timing of either the warfarin or whatever that we are bridging with, whether it be an oxaparin or deltaparin, and then educate them on the administration of these injections as well, because... I've gotten fair cases of patients saying, well, I'm bruising, so I'm going to stop taking it. And that's where the risk of clotting and that stressing that you need this medication so you don't clot around the procedure is very important. And as we mentioned earlier, that this is more of an interdisciplinary affair. So talking with the patient does really help, but documenting this plan that you have developed in the chart is helpful for those who are going to be taking care of the patient on the hospital side or helping patient post-op. Um, so those caregivers are known, would know, you know, what's what's the patient's dose, you know, what the patient needs to do. Obviously, um, the surgeon or the inpatient team is very um, capable of taking care of the patient's needs uh, depending on the patient's bleeding risk or clotting risk. So the plan may be slightly modified. So to kind of wrap up a couple key concepts, one concept, a big takeaway is in terms of holding aspirin, it depends on why the patient is taking it. So if it's for primary prevention, someone who doesn't have an extensive cardiovascular risk, you just stop it, period, no matter what the bleeding risk is. If they're at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, especially if they've had a recent stent, you're generally going to continue the aspirin with very few exceptions for very, very high-risk bleeding procedures. And as for restarting the anticoagulants or antiplatelets, you know, it's going to depend on patient's hemodynamic stability. It's going to depend on the thrombosis risk, but it's also going to depend on how fast these medications start working um, and producing those anticoagulant and antiplatelet effect. And again, one other point to make is the idea that, that what we're talking about here generally is in terms of elective procedure. When you have the ability to plan out and carefully weigh risk versus benefit of bridging, no bridge, how long to hold. For a number of procedures that are more emergent in nature, we do have the ability to provide a degree of, of block or a reversal of the agent. Again, that's going to depend upon the individual agent we're referring to. We do have something like case sensor, which can provide a relative degree of block for a number of the DOACs, and then we have Praxibine available for dabigatran, and then we also have FFP and vitamin K and, and other mention, uh, methods for reversing warfarin, for example. The big thing to know, though, again, with all this is this is an interdisciplinary dialogue piece where you're communicating with number of providers. The 
you know, the uh, surgeon may reach out to pharmacy to ask for input. We communicate it back to them, write a note, defer to them. And again, and they have the ability to kind of, there's a little bit of a nuance to it is, well, can we consider relaxing it or tightening it up a little bit? And then the next piece, obviously, is to involve the patient in that decision process, give them the education, and then also make sure that they're communicating again with the, the last provider that sees them, the surgeon, to make sure that nothing coming out of the procedure may have changed your plan based upon any emergent bleed that may be seen or other complications that were noted from the procedure. So it's kind of an ongoing dialogue that needs to be there. So that wraps up our perioperative anticoagulation and antiplatelet topic. Uh, if you haven't done so already, check out episode 74, which is where we kind of kicked off the topic and covered a lot of the anticoagulant aspects of this topic. If you want to see show notes, we're at helixtalk.com, also on Twitter, at helixtalk. And we love those five-star reviews. Keep those coming. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel, and as always, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.